Let me say good evening and happy Sabbath to everyone. I'm trying to get used to the weather change because I'm coming from Georgia where it is sweltering hot. And then now I'm here in California, Santa Barbara, where it's kind of cold tonight. But I'm grateful to God that he blessed all of us to be here. I'm trusting that you all have come with an expectation to draw closer to Jesus. Is that right? If there's any other reason you're here, then you're in the wrong place. We're all here because we know that there's somewhere in our lives where we don't have the connection with Christ as we should. But by the grace of God tonight, we want to have it. And what I want to let you know is that if you do not have an opportunity to hear the voice of Jesus tonight, it will not be because Jesus is not speaking, but it will be because perhaps we did not have ears to hear. And so it is that tonight we want to make sure by the grace of God that every single one of us, whatever the distractions are, whatever's pressing on your mind right now that's distracting you from possibly hearing God speak to you. I'm going to encourage you that you make a very special prayer in your heart to say, Lord, please give me ears to hear that I can be focused, that when your spirit speaks to me, that I'll be able to hear you and that I'll be able to follow you and do your will. I promise you, Christ is going to speak to our hearts tonight. There's something very special Jesus wants to say to each and every one of us. And I'll be honest with you, this is a phenomenal environment to do it. This reminds me of just the stories that I read of old where God's people would come together in mountains and wilderness and tight places where they would come together to study the word of God. That they can better understand God's will for their lives as they knew that they were called to do a very special work in the final generation. And so it is that tonight we're going to do the same thing. So before we go into our meeting tonight... I want to invite each and every one of us to bow our heads as we approach God's throne in prayer. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful. You've blessed each and every one of us to make it safely through another week. You've watched over us. You've cared for our lives, Lord, and you've granted us various provisions that you allowed us to be here tonight. And every single one of us, we've come here with a great expectation. We want to hear not the voice of a man, but we want to hear the voice of the only man that counts, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. We pray that he would truly be the one to speak to our hearts in a very marked manner so that we will be able to say that we have heard the voice of our shepherd. And as faithful sheep, we will follow him wheresoever he may lead. And so, Lord God, whatever distractions that would plague our minds and cause us, Lord, not to commune with heaven, we pray, please remove them. We pray that you would bind every demonic spirit that would try to hinder us from receiving the blessing that you have in store for us on this, your holy Sabbath day. And Father, we're praying and we're even giving thanks because we know that you have heard the prayer of faith. And therefore, we accept by faith that you have already answered and have already supplied the blessings we need most. Speak to our hearts tonight, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible, you're already crippling yourself. And the reason why I say that, and if you don't have it tonight, I understand it's kind of dark, so therefore you're not going to be able to get it tonight. But come tomorrow, make sure you never come here without your Bible. The last thing you want to do is to hear the opinion of a man. Is that right? That's the last thing you want to hear. We've been hearing the opinions of men all our lives. And the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, verse 5, it says, Cursed be the man that puts his trust in man. And make it flesh his arm. So the last thing we want to do is put our trust in what a person says. But the Bible also says in Jeremiah 17, 7, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. So every single one of us tonight, we literally stand between the balances of curses and blessings. It is going to be your decision. If you choose to hear the opinions of men and to embrace that as truth, the Bible promises you a curse. But if you choose to hear the words of God and embrace that as truth, the Bible promises you a blessing. And I believe every single one of us came for a blessing. Is that right? So therefore, we want to make sure that we're studying the word of God. Now, you're going to do the best that you can with the amount of lighting that we have. But I want to draw your attention to a very specific point. You're going to turn your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 4. For those of you who have your Bibles with you, we're going to the book of Luke chapter 4. I was at a church and I was actually speaking the word of God to a group of individuals. And what happened was there was an elder that was there. And as the elder was listening to me, he said, listen, you know what? Um, I appreciate the things that you shared. Do me a favor. Come by my church and I want you to talk to my young people. And I said, all right, not a problem. And it turned out that he had over 90 young people in his church. 
So he had a very large group. So here it is. I came out there and I saw these brothers and sisters. Now, this was in the African-American community. And this is where a lot of individuals were plagued by the things that typically plague the youth in the African-American community. And the reason why I'm saying that is because there were individuals who had their pants hanging off their backside. You ever see people like that? Pants hanging off their backside, big old afros and just walking in looking like they could care about nothing. And I'm watching all these brothers come in and they're looking at me like, what in the world are you going to teach us? And here it is that I'm coming to this Bible study. I see them coming in. I see the young ladies. They got skirts real high, cleavage low, just, you know, acting like a whatever. I don't know what it is that there was on their minds, but it seemed like the last thing in the world that they were interested in was anything that had to do with God. They did not want to read the Bible. They didn't want to study. But nevertheless, they came to the class. So here I am standing before up to 90 plus young people. And I'm saying to myself, Father, I'm going to need a special blessing from heaven to talk to these brethren. And here it is that as I was talking with them and I started to find out, I said, listen, what's on your minds? Your elder brought me here to study with you. What is it that's on your minds? And they began to share with me, well, we got questions about this and we have questions about that. And they started going on and on. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. As they started sharing with me what was on their minds, I said, can I ask you a question? I said, what do you think it was that made the ministry of Jesus so powerful? I said, you do agree Jesus's ministry was powerful, right? Now, would we agree that Jesus's ministry was powerful? No one would disagree with that, right? So therefore, what was it that you think that made Jesus's ministry so powerful? This was the question that I asked them and I'm asking you tonight. What would you say if someone asked you and said, do you think the ministry of Jesus was powerful? Your answer would be what? Yes. Now, if the person then said, what was it about Jesus that you think made his ministry so powerful? What would your answer be? (coughs) He lived a life. God. Anything else? The fact that he was healing people. Okay, good. Anything else? He had a way to reach every individual's minds to meet their needs. Very powerful. Now, I'm going to show you something to add to. Everything you just put, I'm going to show you one of the most foundational reasons why Jesus's ministry was so powerful. And when I shared this with them, I said, and as you find out what made Jesus's ministry so powerful, maybe you might discover why your ministry is so weak. And they literally are looking at me and I got their attention now. I was keeping it real with them. I said, look, this is a keep it real generation. I cannot play games with you. What you're going to find out by the conclusion of this weekend, ladies and gentlemen, is time is almost finished. And the last thing in the world that I'm going to do is come here to give you some type of flowery, smooth message to make everybody feel good in their sins, understanding that we are not prepared for the things that's getting ready to come into this world and take the majority of the people in this world as an overwhelming surprise. By the grace of God, we have to enter into an experience with Jesus that's so real that it won't just last for a weekend, but it'll last for the rest of our days. And here it is that the Bible says in Luke, the fourth chapter, if you're in the Luke, the fourth chapter, I'm going to ask that you let me know by saying amen. amen. In Luke chapter four, Jesus made a very powerful statement as he was coming to the church. And it starts in Luke chapter four and verse 16. Now, notice what the Bible says. In fact, let's read it together. Luke chapter four and verse 16. Here's what the Bible says. It says in Luke four sixteen, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. It says, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, do me a favor. Read this verse with me. Verse 18. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, keep in mind, what just happened is something that was normal. Now, you know how it is. When you go to church, do you always hear somebody do a scripture reading? Mm -hmm. Now, here it is. That's all Jesus was doing up until this point. It was natural. It was normal for individuals to come to the synagogue, pick up a scroll from one of the prophets and read from it. Nothing special about it. And so it is that Jesus, he comes into the synagogue and he does what everybody else does. He begins to read it. But notice what verse 20 says. There was something about the way Christ read it that was different from how other people normally read it. Look at what it says in verse 20. It says in verse 20, and he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. Read that sentence with me. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. So here it is. Jesus, he comes before the congregation. 
He opens up the book of Isaiah. He begins to read the spirit of the Lord is upon me and so on and so forth. And it's like the people are looking at him and they're listening to him. And something is going on in their minds that's saying, you know what? He's not just reading it like somebody who was given a job to read. It seems like when Christ was reading these words, it is almost as if he believed the words he was speaking. Not only that, but notice what it says in verse 21. And here's the secret of Christ's power in his ministry. Look at what the Bible says in verse 21. Read it with me. It says, and he began to say unto them, what? This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus knew where he was in prophecy. When Jesus lived on earth, brothers and sisters, he was not just walking around empty and vain, acting like he was some type of speck that was just supposed to be counted amongst the number of other specks in the world. Jesus knew that his life had purpose and he understood the purpose of his ministry. He understood his calling. He always knew where he was in prophecy. And that's why when he read the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he understood that what I'm reading to you, I am living it right before you right now. The very spirit of God that Isaiah was saying is upon some individual to do all these great works. He's saying, I'm that individual. He understood where he was in prophecy. The reason why many of us are so weak in our walk with God is because we have no clue where we are in prophecy. Many of us today, we have no idea what's my role. Why why do I exist? What's the part that I'm supposed to play in my existence on this earth? You think that God wakes you up every day to waste breath? When God wakes you up every day, it's because there's a divine purpose and calling in your life. And he is waiting for you to capture the vision that you might fulfill that calling. That's the reason why you're still alive. That's the reason why sometimes other individuals, unfortunately, they don't wake up, but you still woke up. God wants you to understand that there's a great purpose. There's a great calling that he's placed on your life. And by the grace of God, you need to understand that tonight. There are too many individuals today who name the name of Seventh-day Adventists, but they do not know what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And it is by the grace of God that tonight we're going to see it. You see, when the Bible tells us about the history of God's last day church, many people go to Revelation chapter 12. But do you know the real history of God's last day church is not necessarily found in Revelation 12, but it's actually found in Revelation chapter 10. And you will find that in Revelation chapter 10, there was a great work that God had placed upon the hearts and minds of his people as it relates to his last day church with their last day message. And I want you to see what it is. Go to the book of Revelation, the 10th chapter. In Revelation chapter 10, I want you to see what the Bible says. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Revelation, the 10th chapter. I want you to see how God laid this out. You have to understand Now we're not going to be able to go point by point. What I want you to do is you want to go ahead and make this part of your study. You want to go back and you want to study Revelation chapter 10 and you want to study it point by point, verse by verse. There's a wonderful book called Evangelism written by Ellen White. This book actually talks about the various ways to do evangelistic work. Well, on page 363 of that very same book, it actually talks about how God's people, when they come together, it says in place of so much sermonizing, in place of so much what? In place of so much sermonizing, it says God's people should be coming together to study text by text to know what they believe. God wants us to get to a point that we are no longer ignorant Christians. People who go to church say amen to a whole bunch of stuff that we don't even know what we're saying amen for. God says, I want you to get to a point that you become intelligent and understand what you believe. And the only way we can do that is not by sitting down, listening to a preacher talk for 40, 55 minutes. And here it is. He only gives one or two Bible verses. But what we have to do is we have to study text by text and know what we believe. And so it is that one of the homework assignments I'm going to give to you is that I want to encourage you study Revelation chapter 10 text by text, verse by verse. It literally is a walk through history, bringing you all the way up to the rise of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And here it is that as this movement started to come together, there was a great herald. There were individuals who were studying the books of Daniel and the book of Daniel became open to individuals. It was closed for a period of time. But then shortly after 1798, all of a sudden, the book of Daniel became open. Individuals had an incredible interest. And you know what's amazing? I literally remember being in school and studying this. 
I was raised in a public school system and I did not like history. I couldn't stand the class. I hated it. But here it is that in those very same classes, I remember studying about something called the Great Disappointment. And as I studied about this great disappointment that took place in 1844 with this group called the Millerites, I didn't understand it then. But now I've learned my word. Look at this. I was studying what the Bible was teaching and didn't even know it. And here it is that as they were studying the book of Daniel, they began to understand that there was a time of which Jesus, they thought, was going to come. And they started to spread that thing like wildfire. It started going all over the world. They literally got the many people all over the planet to believe Jesus was about to come. They said he was going to come in 1844. They based it off of a prophecy found in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, where it says unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. They thought the sanctuary constituted the earth. So they said, well, the cleansing of the sanctuary deals with judgment, according to Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. So they said, well, that means that God is going to judge the earth in 1844. And as a result of that, they went around telling everybody, Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to come. Rend your heart and not your garment. Jesus is going to come. And as they began to do that, many people believed. And literally, you can read this in the history books. You can read this in Wikipedia or any of these things. And here it is that as the people were coming together and believing all these things, 1844 came and guess what? Jesus did not come. And as a result of that fact that Jesus did not come, it says that there was an experience that took place. Look at Revelation chapter 10. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in Revelation, the 10th chapter. If you're there, say amen. It says in Revelation chapter 10, and I want you to see what the Bible says. We're going to go ahead and start at verse 8. It says in Revelation 10 and verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. Now, again, this little book is talking about the book of Daniel. Now, watch this. It says, and I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Now, when they first studied the book of Daniel and when they saw that their precious Savior, whom they said that they loved and demonstrated that they loved, when they believed he was coming, ladies and gentlemen, it was the sweetest thing in the world. Can you imagine that if you actually had a date and you knew that Jesus, the one whom you love, adored and gave your life to, was actually getting ready to come and take you home with him? Wouldn't it be sweet? So it is that it was sweet in their mouth. But when Jesus did not come in 1844 and here they are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then Christ never showed up. Ladies and gentlemen, I promise you, it was sweet in their mouth, but it was bitter in their belly. And after this had taken place, God said something very special. And this is where the rise of the Seventh-day Adventist movement comes into the picture. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 10. Notice what it says in verse 10. It says, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Verse 11 is key. It says, and he said unto me, thou must do what? Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The very messages that they were giving, a message of judgment, the very messages that they were giving, a message of Babylon and calling people out of that confusion. They said the Bible says that they would have to prophesy again. There was going to be a movement that Revelation chapter 10 saw was going to come up on the scene after this great disappointment that was going to prophesy again and give the right understanding of something very special in the Bible found in Revelation 14. Turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter in Revelation chapter 14. Here it is that we find the end time gospel message. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then what was going to happen? Then the end shall come. Right now, here it is. All we had to do was look throughout the Bible. Where do we find a gospel being preached that after it's being preached, the end comes? And it's found right here in Revelation, the 14th chapter in Revelation, chapter 14. Notice what it says in verse six. It says in Revelation 14, six. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So coinciding with Revelation 10, 11, 
We just saw that they were going to have to prophesy again to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. Now, here goes Revelation 14 saying that there's this everlasting gospel. There's a messenger who's going throughout the world, letting every nation, kindred, tongue and people know about something called the everlasting gospel. Now, watch this from verse seven all the way to verse 12. You find out what constitutes this everlasting gospel. And it's how many angels messages, three Three angels messages. The first angel's message was a call to judgment. It was a call to individuals to let them know that judgment is not something that is coming, but judgment has already what? Come. It has already begun. Understand that Revelation 22 tells us that when Jesus comes, is he coming to give judgment? No, the Bible says he's coming to give what? Rewards. So therefore, a judgment has to precede a reward. Brothers and sisters, understand we're living in the time of judgment right now. Right now, God is looking at your life and he's looking at my life and he's not paying attention to what we do in front of one another necessarily. Because, you know, we all know how to act sometimes when we get around together and we come into groups like this. Everybody says happy Sabbath and praise the Lord. But brothers and sisters, what are we like when the sun sets and the Sabbath is over? What are we like when we go throughout the week? What are we like when we're not in a church environment, but now we're by ourselves? Are we still representing that very character? God says you must understand that we're living in a time of judgment. We're living in a time where God is scrutinizing the life. He's looking to see, do you reflect my image? Because if I could make it plain to you, there's only one thing Jesus is coming back for. He's coming back for a group of mirrors. Jesus is coming back for a group of people that he can see himself in them. Jesus is coming back for mirrors. He needs to make sure. Can I see myself in you or do I see another image of another person? And so it is that the judgment message was the one that was going that was going on. And then the second angel's message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. They had to say that again. And then there was the third angel's message, which warned about the beast and his image. Now, the thing I want you to catch is this. Here it is that God says we have to prophesy again. God says we must understand that we're living in the time of judgment right now. This is not the time to play games and to keep delaying the experience we need to have with Jesus now. So therefore, now I want you to see something. While God's people are to understand as well as herald to the world that we are living in the time of judgment and we need to get our hearts right with God. Ladies and gentlemen, do you want to hear the sad commentary of what the prophetic utterings of Jesus says? Go to the book of Revelation chapter three. In Revelation chapter three, we now find that while God was telling his people that they were living in the time of judgment, God had a very special message to give to the same people who were called to let the world know that we're living in the time of judgment. God actually says, I have something very important to say to my very people who are the people of the judgment. And it's found in Revelation, the third chapter. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Revelation chapter three, notice what the Bible says in verse 14, Revelation chapter three and verse 14. Look at what it says now, because, ladies and gentlemen, this statement, what we're reading right here does not apply to the person to our right and left. It applies to us. This is a statement that we must be willing to accept if we're going to experience the healing that only Jesus can give. The Bible says in Revelation three and verse 14, it says, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. In other words, there was a place called the Laodicea. And here it is that it says the church of the Laodiceans. The word Laodicea means a judged people. Now, remember, we are a people that's giving a message of what? Judgment. Judgment. And here it is that now God says, I have a message to my judged people. And here it is. God says in verse 14 and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. These things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. God says, I know thy works. Now, brothers and sisters, we have to make something clear. Though we can do a lot of things in this world and quite honestly, we can fool man. There are many things that we can do in this world and make things look pleasing and make it look nice. God says, I know your works. God makes it clear that no matter how much we try to put on certain imagery, No matter how much we try to put up a certain front or a certain facade before others, God says, I know your works. God says, I know what's going on in your heart. Remember, 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Bible says that God does not look on the outward appearance. It says God looks upon the heart. And therefore, we have to understand we are not called to be a bunch of actors. Do you know that when Jesus would say, woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites? Remember, Jesus would say that. 
He would say that a lot, right? Matthew 23, he would constantly, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. Do you know what a hypocrite is? The actual word hypocrite means actor. And God says, I don't want my people to become a bunch of actors. I don't want my people to do something on the outward that's not genuinely coming from the inside. Today, you have a group of individuals today who even will do church service, but they will do it with a perverted motive. There are some people who do Bible studies and the only reason they're doing it is so they can be recognized and perhaps win a trophy or some other award. There are certain ministers who will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will do tent meetings and do all these great things just so that they can baptize a certain number of individuals and report it to a conference so they can be recognized as the next great evangelist. There are people who can do a great work but have a perverted motive. And God says, I know thy works. God says it is not enough for you and I to do good works. God says you must learn what it is to be good on the inside because God is good and God must be on the inside, motivating you from within out to do the works that you do. So God starts with Laodicea. He says, listen, he says, I know thy works. And he goes on to say, we're back in Revelation 3. It says, I know thy works, verse 15, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, the question is, what was it that brought the Laodiceans to this type of condition? What would get them to a point that they would become so lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, but they became lukewarm. And when you and I drink lukewarm water, you know, it makes you want to vomit. Right. And so it is that now these individuals have a lukewarm experience. And it seems as if it's all it wants to do is make God throw it up. Now, here it is all of a sudden. What is it now that brought them into this condition? Because the curse caused this shall not come. Why is it that they ended up this way? It says it right here in the next verse. Notice what it says. It says, because thou sayest. God, in other words, is saying, I'm not in agreement with you. God says, you said this. I didn't say this. You said this. He says, because thou sayest that I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's one of the problems with Laodicea. It's one of the worst disease. We get spooked out when we start hearing about cancer and AIDS. Ladies and gentlemen, Laodicea is a much worse disease. Laodicea is a disease that takes hold of the heart and the mind, penetrates the body, takes over. And sometimes the individual doesn't even recognize that they're in their condition. It says you say that you are rich. You say that you're increased with goods. You say that you have need of nothing. That is the way a lot of people are living in this world today. A lot of people get up today and they don't even have prayer. They act as if it seems like by their own virtue and innately, they just get up every day and go about and do what they do. There are people today who will drive their cars, buy their food, make their money and do the various things they do in life. And they will not even so much as pause and say, thank you, Jesus. Why? Because as far as they're concerned, I am rich. I am increased with good. I don't have need of anything. I don't even need God. And this is the way the majority of people in this world today are living. And quite honestly, even people in the church. God has become some type of ceremonial service type element that we just sometimes acknowledge ritualistically speaking, whether it's once a week or this, that and the other. Ladies and gentlemen, if the only time you have a religious experience is once a week, that's exactly what we are. A weak Christian. God expects us to understand you can't have a connection with me once a week and then try to go six days without me. Brothers and sisters, we got to learn what it is to walk with Jesus as Enoch walked in days of old. And I promise you, Enoch did not spend time with Christ one day a week. Enoch spent time with Christ moment by moment throughout the day, every day of the week. And so it is that we find that there are individuals today. They think that they're rich. They think that they are creased with goods. They think I don't need anything. But now God says, that's what you said. But now look at what God says. Finishing the text. It says now. It says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind. And what's that last one? And naked. The sooner you accept this is the sooner healing can come to your heart. We must recognize that, brothers and sisters, we're wretched. We're miserable. We're poor, we're blind and we're naked. No matter how many zeros you have in your bank account, no matter how successful your business might be, no matter how great you and I might think we are, we must recognize I am wretched. I'm miserable. I'm poor and I'm blind and I'm naked. I need 
Jesus. If we don't recognize that, we will never be healed. And so it is that God says, this is my true statement of you. Now watch this. After God tells us this truth, he then brings us up to another point. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see. God says, even though you're sick, even though you're in this horrible condition, God says, I can build you up. I can bring you out of it. I have a remedy. But the problem is, there are many today who will not have that remedy. There are many today who are choosing to rather lean on the ideology of self rather than lean on the wonderful lips and arms of Jesus. And as a result of that, brothers and sisters, the church ended up becoming in such a state that Paul actually said something about it. And I want you to see what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul actually said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, a comment in relation to God's church in the last days, God's people. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want you to notice what the Bible says. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 now, watch this. Because a lot of times when you read this quote, a lot of times it seems like this quote is more so referring to the world. But I want you to see how this is not referring to the world. This is actually referring to religious people. Look at what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, notice what the Bible says. We're going to go ahead and start at verse 1. This know also that in the last days, what kind of time shall come? Perilous times shall come. Now, I'm going to wonder, what is it that's going to make it so perilous or so terrible? Look at what it says in verse 2. For men shall be what? Lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, brothers and sisters, did you just catch that last verse? Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Does that sound like the generation today? Do you know that we can go ahead and hold a meeting where we say, hey, let's come together so that we can experience revival and reformation and draw close to Jesus and get ready for the coming of the Lord. And we might just get a handful of people. But if we say, hey, let's come together and let's get a picnic going and we're going to have volleyball, basketball, swimming and all this other stuff, we would have issues trying to pack all the people inside of here. Individuals today, they love pleasure more than they even love Jesus Christ. And so many individuals testify of this. Now, watch this. When we read this, we typically will say, yep, yeah, that's the world, man. That's the world. The, the, the world is definitely like that. We see that. But notice what the next verse says. The next verse shows us, oh, no, it's not the world, because notice what it says in the next verse. It says in verse five, having a what form of what godliness. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you ride down the streets, do you see billboards that have bold, naked pictures? Yes, you do. When we go in certain areas, do we see individuals cussing and swearing and using all sorts of foul language? Absolutely. But ladies and gentlemen, the world is not ashamed to let us know that they're worldly. They make it plain. They put it on billboards. They put it in books. They put it in movie theaters and they certainly paste it on cars and everything else. They make it clear. Therefore, the world does not have a form of godliness. But you know where you can find forms of godliness? In the church. You can find forms of godliness in the church. And Paul understood this. And this is why Paul saw that this was not such. You see, ladies and gentlemen, keep it plain. It, is, it would be one thing if worldliness was just strictly in the world because the world has always been worldly. But it's another thing. And it is truly a perilous time when the very place that God says was supposed to be the lighthouse to let their light so shine in the world that that place now becomes a place where there's great darkness. And so it is that today. We're finding that there are many people in the church who love pleasure more than they love God, who are covetous, who are boasters, unthankful and unholy. Individuals who love pleasure more than lovers of God is in the church. And this is why it is truly a perilous time. And just to imagine that in such a time where judgment is taking place right now, your name and my name could come up at any moment in the heavenly books. And here it is that we have the nerve to still be playing games with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is deadly. 
We have to find ourselves the solution to get out of this Laodicean state and to walk with Jesus as Enoch walked in days of old. I want you to consider this. In volume one of the Testimonies to the Church, page 406, it says no stronger delusion. No what? No stronger delusion can deceive the human mind than that which makes them believe that they are right and that God accepts their works. When they are sinning against God and sinning against him. Did you hear that? Let me read it again. No stronger delusion can deceive the human mind than that which makes them believe that they are right and that God accepts their works when they are sinning against God. It says they mistake the form of godliness for the spirit and power thereof. They suppose that they are rich and have need of nothing when they are poor, wretched, blind and naked and need all things. It goes on to say in volume one of the testimony to the church, page 466, it says, as I mark the indifference, the what? What does it mean to be indifferent? It means that you're careless. It means that you could care less. You ever did something wrong and you don't even care anymore? When an individual begins to do wrong things, whether they hurt husband, hurt wife, hurt mother, hurt father, where they begin to hurt brother, hurt sister, where they begin to hurt one another or even hurt themselves. And especially when they hurt God, when individuals can get to a point in their experience that they can do things that they know is wrong. Now, keep in mind, James 4, 17 says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. It says to him, it is what it is sin. Now, even though we typically focus on sin as far as how we suffer, we forget how sin causes God to suffer. The Bible says in Hebrews 6 and verse 6, it says every single time that we sin, we crucify Christ afresh. And today we have individuals who will sin. And at the same time, they're indifferent. They don't care. Brothers and sisters, if that is the state of mind that we are in, we have to fall on our knees and plead before God like never before. Lord, please bring a revival in my soul, because that is a clear indicator that we are on the road to hell. It is not that God wants that, but when a man can commit sin and get to a point that he could care less about the consequences or the results or whoever it is that they hurt, that's a dangerous place to be. And it says, as I mark the indifference, which was everywhere apparent, I was alarmed for ministers and people. Did you notice it's not just the lay people, but it said for who else? Ministers as well. So therefore, this is something that is not some guy standing up front saying, look at big eye and look at little you. No, ministers and the people are in the same danger of falling into this, this indifference. Listen to what it says now. It says there seemed to be a paralysis upon the cause of present truth. It says the work of God seems stayed. It says ministers and people are unprepared for the time in which they live and nearly all who profess to believe present truth are unprepared to understand the work of preparation for this time. You see, the reason why I'm speaking to you with a sense of urgency is you got to understand something. Born and raised in Queens, New York, born and raised in a home that we did not hear anything about Jesus, born and raised in an environment, brothers and sisters, with bullets past my head on a regular basis. Born and raised in a situation where I ended up being in the hip hop and R&B industry. And so many times I was exposed to death and it was only by the grace of God that I've been saved from it. Amen. The last thing in the world that I can do is that now that Christ has brought me out of the darkness into his marvelous life. You think I'm going to play games with you? You think I'm going to come here and, and give you some type of flowery feel good statements? Brothers and sisters, I can't afford to do that. We have to keep it real. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with our condition. We have been told that nearly all of us, we are not prepared for what's about to come, what's about to come. We're not prepared for it. And if we're not prepared, what happens when individuals are unprepared and a crisis comes? They get destroyed in the crisis. Do you think that's what Jesus wants for you? No. Jesus says, take heed. He says, behold, I tell you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you might believe. So therefore, Christ says, I want us to do a checkup from the neck up. Christ says, I want you to be able to see yourself for your truest condition so that way you can recognize, you can confess and say, Lord, here I am. Here's my true state. Please help me. This is where we all have to be. 
Now I want you to listen to the finishing of this quote. Watch this now. It says ministers and people are unprepared for the time in which they live. And nearly all who profess to believe present truth are unprepared to understand the work of preparation for this time in their present state of worldly ambition. With their lack of consecration to God, their devotion to self. They are wholly unfitted to receive the latter rain and having done all to stand against the wrath of Satan, who by his inventions, which caused them to make shipwreck of faith, fastening upon them some pleasing self-deception. They think they are all right when they are all wrong. God says this is the description of my people. Do you accept that tonight? Can you honestly accept to say, Lord, I'm not ready. If Jesus were to come tonight, I'd be lost. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you right now, if Jesus was to come tonight, I, Dwayne Lemon, would be lost. There is still more for me to surrender. There's more for you to surrender. And by the grace of God, as we press together, we can surrender together. That needs to be the focus all throughout this weekend. Lord, how can I be closer drawn to thee? Now, I want you to consider these these few points as we get ready to close out just for this evening. This evening is simply to set the foundation, because remember, the whole focus of our weekend is that the focus is something called persuaded. It comes from Second Timothy 1:12, where Paul made it clear. He says, I know in whom I have believed. And he said, and I am persuaded. You and I, brothers and sisters, need to be persuaded, but we can't be persuaded if we're in this condition. There is no way that word persuaded means that I am fully convinced I cannot be moved. The problem with many of us today is that we are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that blows. And if you think I'm not serious, I'll show you tomorrow. You'll see tomorrow when we begin to analyze this thing. Our whole focus throughout this weekend is how can we become persuaded? How can we get to a point that we can be like God's servant Paul, that in the midst of everything that's blowing from left to right, front and center, that by the grace of God, we can be persuaded. We cannot be moved. This must be the experience of you and I. It has to be. There is no other option. Amen. Amen. Now, let's go ahead and look at some final points. First Peter chapter four. You see, in first Peter chapter four. Remember now, it all started by understanding this Christ. He understood where he was in prophecy. Amen. Christ understood where he was in prophecy. You and I need to understand where we are in prophecy. We saw that we are in the time that we have been called to prophesy again. And as we have been called to prophesy again, the messages that we are given is the first, second and third angels message, which constitutes the everlasting gospel. God is a God of order. So there's no way you and I are going to experience the third angels message if we don't experience which one? The first. And the first angel's message calls us to a time to recognize that we are living in the time of judgment. And because we are living in the time of judgment, we cannot put off the experience we need with Jesus tomorrow. We must have it today. And as a result of that, God says, good, I'm glad you see that. But God says, now I have to give you a real picture of my people today. And he took us to Revelation chapter three and he showed us his judged people that instead of them being ready for the coming of Christ, they were perfectly unready. Why? Because they were filled with a disease called what? Laodicea. And that Laodicean disease was a disease that shows that an individual, they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. They do not realize it. Their problem is that they thought that they were better than themselves. They thought that they were better than others. Perhaps they even thought they were better than God. And as a result of this horrific disease, Paul says in the last days, it'll be perilous times because that disease is manifesting itself. How? Through covetousness in the church. How? Through boasting in the church. How? Through unholiness in the church. How? Those in the church who love even pleasure more than they love God. They're more stuck on forms than they are receiving power. And as a result of that, God magnified these points through inspiration, through volume one of the testimonies and showed the true condition of God's people and showed how while we think we are all right, we are truly all wrong. And so it is that God says, now I need to bring out some final points to you. I want you to understand this. Let's go to the book of first Peter, chapter four. You're in first Peter four. Amen. In first Peter, chapter four, as we bring out these final points now, 
In 1 Peter chapter 4, notice what the Bible says. In 1 Peter chapter 4, I want you to see what the Bible says in verse 12. If you're there, let me know by saying amen. It says in 1 Peter 4, 12, let's read it together, understanding some more things about judgment now. It says in 1 Peter 4, 12, it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a what? A murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a what? Busybody in other men's affairs or men's matters. Mind your own business. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now read verse 17 with me. For the time is come that what? Judgment must begin where? At the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? You see, while we understand that there is a time of judgment that we are living in right now, we must also understand that God says, I have an order of how I'm dealing with this process of judgment. And he says, my judgment first begins not with the wicked and worldly, but it begins with the professed people of God. God says, I'm literally starting with those who choose to name the name of Christ. God says, my judgment begins with them. In fact, I want to magnify this point. I think it's worthy to do so. I want you to listen to this. In Great Controversy, page 480, it says, In the typical service, only those who had come before God with confession and repentance and whose sins through the blood of the sin offering were transferred to the sanctuary had a part in the service of the Day of Atonement. It says, so in the great day of final atonement and investigative judgment, the only classes considered are those of the professed people of God. The judgment of the wicked is a distinct and separate work and takes place at a later period. Did you hear that? Oh, let me read that again. Let me make sure we got it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand the sense of urgency. All I'm trying to do tonight is by the grace of God is create the sense of urgency not to run to the mountains, not to create the sense of urgency that you will run and try to do some type of work to make yourself right with God, but that you would surrender to Christ and let his will be done in your life. That needs to be your sense of urgency. That's where it starts. It says in the typical service, only those who had come before God with confession and repentance and whose sins through the blood of the sin offering were transferred to the sanctuary had a part in the service of the Day of Atonement. So in the great day of final atonement and investigative judgment, the only cases considered are those of the professed people of God. The judgment of the wicked is a distinct and separate work. And takes place at a later period. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? First Peter 4, 17. So therefore, we must understand that God right now, he is putting the radar screen on those especially who profess to be the people of God. That's you and I. Is that right? So therefore, I want you to understand this. Now, someone might say, well, OK, fine. The Lord is judging me. What exactly is he judging? What, 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 what's he judging? Now, first of all, when you go to James chapter 2 and you read verses 10 through 12, you find that the Bible says we are judged by the law of God. So therefore, God is going to take his holy law, which reflects his character, and God is going to look at our characters and see and make sure that our characters match up with the holiness of the law of God. Are you following? Now, watch this. In magnification of this very same point, manuscript release 4, 1888, this is what it says. It says the grand judgment is taking place and has been going on for some time. Now the Lord says, measure the temple and the worshipers thereof. Remember when you are walking the streets about your business, God is measuring you. Did you hear that? When you are walking the streets about your day to day business, understand God is measuring you. It says when you are attending your household duties. When you engage in conversation, God is measuring you. Remember that your words and actions are being daguerreotaped de de or photographed in the books of heaven as the face is reproduced by the artist on the polished plate. 
Here is the work going on, measuring the temple and its worshipers to see who will stand in the last day. It says those who stand fast, those who what? Follow me now. We're getting ready to bring it to a close. Those who stand fast shall have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So if we want to have that abundance of blessing in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we must do what? We must stand fast. Amen. It says when we are doing our work, remember there is one that is watching the spirit in which we are doing it. Shall we not bring the Savior into our everyday lives, into our secular work and domestic duties? Then in the name of God, we want to leave behind everything that is not necessary, all gossiping or unprofitable visiting and present ourselves as servants of the living God. This is what God says we ought to be doing. He says those who stand fast, he says you have the promise. The promise is yours if you stand fast. But he says, but if we choose to continue to allow our minds, our actions, our words, our thoughts and our deeds, if we allow them to continue down the path and the road of perdition, brothers and sisters, we are in great danger. Jesus is saying to each and every one of us tonight, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose. That's the wonderful gift we've all been given is the gift of choice. Christ tonight is saying, choose me. Do you know that God is so good? He says, listen, I'm not asking you to feel to choose me. He said, I'm asking you to choose me. Then you'll feel it. So often people reject Jesus because they're waiting for some electrifying emotion to take place in their lives. And then they say, all right, no, now I'm ready. And even most people who choose Jesus that way, they typically turn their backs on him shortly thereafter. Emotion is not enough to keep anybody in a relationship on earth. And it's certainly not enough to keep anybody in a relationship between heaven and earth. God says you must choose, exercise the will now. And he says, and I will give you joyful feeling thereafter. I love that statement from early writings, page 72, with the prophet of God. She says, faith is ours to exercise. Joyful feeling is God's to give. God says, all I'm calling you to do is choose. I'm not waiting for you to feel it. God says, choose it because you know it's right. And so it is that it says those who stand fast, they have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if we choose the path of perdition, we have no hope. No hope. And so in closing. We look at Second Timothy one. We're in Second Timothy one where Paul was persuaded. You see, Paul was persuaded. And brothers and sisters, if you carefully study out the text. It was in the midst of persecution. You see, there's nothing like persecution that can remove someone's confidence. But here it is that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, here's what it says about God's servant. It says in 2 Timothy 1, looking at verse 12, it says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Paul was talking about the great work that he was doing, ministering to the Gentiles. He was called of God. And he says, and now for this call, he says, I'm suffering. I'm suffering all these things. But look at how he goes on to say it. He says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And then he gives an admonishment to you and I. Verse 13. He says, read it with me. He says, hold fast. The form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. He says, hold fast. You see, when you and I read the statement from inspiration, it said those who stand fast. But that words, those words stand fast was simply an echo of what Paul was saying when he said, hold fast. He said, I want you to hold fast. Paul says, hold fast to my words, hold fast. In other words, persecution is going to come your way. He says, listen, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We're going to talk about that throughout this weekend, because there are three forms of how persecution comes to all believers. We're going to talk about those three forms throughout this weekend, because you and I have to hold fast in the midst of persecution. As long as everything is flowery, as long as everything is going great, ladies and gentlemen, oh, we'll serve God all day long, won't we? But you know what the real issue is for many of us? The problem is, is when the job that was giving you the great income is no longer there. 
When the business that was so successful is now all of a sudden you're losing profit. When all of a sudden the vehicle that was your only one gets crashed and now you have no vehicle. When that wife or that husband gets sick or when you get sick or the baby dies, the mother dies, the father dies. When relationships break up, it's when we go through persecution. That's typically when we find we're no longer holding fast. And therefore, Paul understanding this, he says, listen, hold fast to my words, because what I've suffered, you shall suffer. And I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to live for Jesus, the Bible says all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's going to come. But we have nothing to fear for the future except as we forget the way the Lord has led us in our past teachings and in our past history. We have nothing to fear. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We have nothing to fear. But Paul says, hold fast. Now, what is it that we're holding fast to? I mean, Paul says, hold fast. But what is it that we're holding fast to? Go to Revelation chapter three. We have two more Bible verses and we're done. In Revelation chapter three, notice what the Bible says. What is it that we're holding fast to? You see, when God made this statement, he didn't mean to be abstract. He wanted to be very pinpointed. He wanted us to understand. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get what? Understanding. In Revelation 3, notice what the Bible says in verse 11. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You see, Paul says, hold fast to the sound speech. Jesus says, hold fast till I come so that no one takes away your crown. That crown that he's talking about is the same crown in Revelation 2.10, the crown of life. What is it that you and I must hold fast to? In other words, what is it that you and I must be concrete on? What is it that you and I must not be moved upon? No matter what type of storm blows our way, no matter what kind of suffering we might receive, just like Paul suffered, what is it that we must hold fast to? The Bible says in Job 26, you're turning to Job, the 26th chapter. What is it that we're holding fast to? Notice what the Bible says. In Job 26, in fact, Job 27, Job 27, what is it that we're holding fast to? In Job, the 27th chapter, and when you get there, let me know by saying amen. Here's exactly what you're holding fast to. What you're going to hold fast to is what Job held fast to. You see, when you come to Jesus, you recognize, Lord, there's no way I could save myself. As the Bible says, I'm wretched. I'm miserable. I'm poor. I'm blind. I'm naked. I'm messed up. Lord, I can't do anything. Even my best efforts, God says, is like a filthy rag. Once you and I can recognize that, then we realize, Lord, there's nothing else I can do except surrender my sinfulness to you and accept your righteousness in return. And then Christ shows us how to live and walk in that righteousness day by day. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that's going to be able to sustain us as we get ready to go through these final scenes. So therefore, when the Bible says hold fast, we're holding fast to the same thing Job was holding fast to. And in Job 27 and verse 6, read it with me. This is what Job held fast to. This is what you and I have to hold fast to. It says in Job 27 verse 6, my what? My righteousness, I do what? Hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. As Jesus comes... And he gives you his righteousness and takes our sinfulness, our wretchedness. Christ says, hold fast to that righteousness that has been given to you. Let nothing take it away from you. Hold on to it so long as you shall live. We must be determined tonight to say, Lord, I accept the fact that I have been living in my own righteousness I've been doing my own thing. I've been trying to do this thing called some of me, some of Christ. A lot of people like to do that. A little bit of Jesus and a little bit of what I want to do. But Christ says, no, that'll never do. Because when you make that kind of lifestyle, you're still wearing your filthy rag. But Jesus says tonight, I want to take the rag away from you completely. That means that going forward tonight, it's no longer about what you want. 
It's no longer about what you think is right. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You and I can't even trust our hearts. So often we say, God knows my heart. God says, yes, I do know your heart. I know your heart so well, God says, I wrote about it. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Why would you trust a heart like that? I have resonated in my heart and my mind. I cannot trust my heart. I cannot trust my mind. The only thing I can do is trust the words of God. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight God says, I want you to choose. He says you can hold on to your filthiness. But if you hold on to your filthiness, brothers and sisters, Jesus says, just remember, when the judgment is finished, I'm going to say, let him who is filthy be filthy still. Christ says, today I want to take your filthiness and I want to give you my righteousness. And once I give it to you, Christ says, hold fast to it and may it remain with you so long as you shall live. You must be persuaded that come whatever it may come, by the grace of God, I will follow thee. And so I make the appeal tonight. It's a very real appeal, brothers and sisters. You got to see it for yourself. Don't do it. Don't remember. Hypocrites are actors. Actors are individuals who profess something they know they're not living or feeling in their hearts anyhow. God doesn't want us to act tonight. God wants us to be real in our hearts. If you honestly can say, Lord, I realize that I am wretched. I am miserable. I am poor. I am blind and I'm naked. And I need your clothing. I need your covering of your righteousness. I'm giving to you tonight, Lord, my sinfulness. And by the grace of God, I don't ever want to take it back. I want your righteousness tonight. And may I hold fast to it so long as I shall live. If tonight you are saying, Lord, I surrender all to you. You're not going to sing the song only, but you're going to live the song. And you're saying tonight, Lord, I give it all to you. Then I'm going to invite you to stand. You're being honest with yourself. You're being honest with your own heart. You're being honest with yourself. If you're saying tonight, I realize I need Jesus. Lord, I'm not ready for your soon coming. But by your grace, I can be ready. And so it is tonight you're standing saying, Lord, I accept your righteousness. Now, I want to let you know that as you stood up, Christ, did you know that Christ literally stood up with you? Jesus stands with you. He stands right next to you and he says, listen, be not afraid. I'm going to walk you through this process. Christ says, I'm going to show you step by step how to do it. And Jesus has never failed a case yet. I promise you, if you hold on to Jesus, you might let him go. But if you simply just lift up to your hands and say, Lord, please hold me. Christ will hold you and he'll never let you go. And so tonight you're saying, Lord, please hold me. Hold me that I may hold you. And as you're standing, you're bowing your heads. Father in heaven, we recognize, dear God, that we all, while we thought we were all right, we realized we were all wrong. We recognize that both ministers and people, we're not ready, Lord. There are so many things that are coming upon this world, Father, and you just simply want to help us to see our need for thee. And Lord, as we stood up tonight, we were being honest with ourselves. Our desire is not to be actors. We don't want to be hypocrites. But we're being honest in our hearts that your spirit is speaking to us and we realize our need to surrender all to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you might seal the decisions that have been made tonight so that as we all are standing, may we continue to stand, though the heavens may fall. And I thank you, Lord, that you've heard this prayer and I thank you that you have answered it. Continue to abide with us as your people until the next time we are to meet tomorrow where we will once again understand the principles of how we can stand through the threefold persecutions we face in this world. And I thank you for having heard and answered our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, 
please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.